0: welcome back to the big amateurism monologues my name is richard ford and i'm your host just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. i can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories And if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is February 16th, 2023, and it's been over a month since I uh, did an episode for the Big Amateurism Monologues podcast. I am working on another venture that also includes podcast material. uh, And I have transitioned in that forum to an interview format. And so I have really been focused on that. But I will be doing episodes for this podcast. And at some point, I probably will get back into a more regular schedule. But I wanted to get a quick episode to talk about What happened yesterday during the oral argument in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in the Johnson case? And I have talked quite a bit about the Johnson case. I'm only going to give a thumbnail sketch here, but I want to refer you back to two episodes that I did in June. The first episode, episode 122, is titled Johnson versus NCAA and the Fair Labor Standards Act, the NCAA's fact free fantasy world. And I explain exactly what this case is about. There were actually a trilogy of cases going back to 2014, the Berger case, the Livers case, and now the Johnson case, which is pending in the Third Circuit. So we're covering a long time frame here. I'm going to discuss the importance of that in the context of how I think the Third Circuit's looking at this case now. And then I did episode 123, more on the Johnson suit, the NCAA's bizarre interpretation of Austin. So if you're interested in what's happening in this Johnson case, you can go back and listen to those two episodes and you'll get a lot of uh, detailed information on the history of the, the issues that are presented in these three cases and then the importance of what's happening right now in the Third Circuit. And the Johnson case is about whether athletes can receive minimum wage payment benefits under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that law is devoted exclusively to minimum wage and overtime issues. While it is a federal labor law, it is completely independent of and has a different purpose from the National Labor Relations Act. And we've had a lot of activity there with these charges that go to whether or not athletes are employees for purposes of that law, and then whether they're entitled to collective bargaining. And that dates back to 2014 in the Northwestern case. And These two issues are sort of tied together in the timeline because the first of the three cases in the Johnson uh, trilogy, the Burger case, was filed in 2014, right after the Northwestern case. And I think it was capturing some of the momentum from this athletes as employees issue, but in a much different context. So under the Fair Labor Standards Act, we're just talking about payment and we're just talking about hourly wages, and it does not address all of these really important other issues on, on work conditions, health and safety, the athlete voice, having a seat at the table, and then also importantly, any economic issues, payment issues that go to the athlete's true market value. And again, the these FLSA cases are really designed to deal with hourly workers who are typically kind of at the lower end of the salary scale. it's not even a salary, actually. It's, It's an hourly wage. And the FLSA distinguishes, clearly distinguishes those hourly workers from... Professionals, for example, who get a negotiated salary. They're, they're two different worlds, and the FLSA is designed to protect the interests of the people at kind of at the bottom of the, the pay scale. So this really doesn't have implications for the big-time revenue-producing athletes in terms of getting their market value through revenue sharing or through collective bargaining if they are recognized as employees under the NLRA. And so I just real quickly wanna identify the six main plaintiffs, athletes, who are suing the um, NCAA and these universities. You have Trey Johnson, a Villanova football player. Villanova's in the FCS, this level below the big time football power conferences, the Power Five and the Group of Five. Then we have Stephanie Kerkeles, who is a uh, Fordham student and is a swimming and diving athlete. then we have Nicholas Labella from Fordham also. He plays baseball. Then Claudia Ruiz from Sacred Heart University, and she played tennis. Then we have Jacob Willebec-Lemaire. He is or was a Cornell soccer player. And then Alexa Cook, who is a Lafayette College tennis player. And the profile of these athletes presents some interesting issues in this analysis of whether these athletes are entitled to FLSA benefits, and that is that they are so far outside of the footprint of the Power Five athletes in any sport, but particularly Power Five football, men's basketball, the revenue-generating sports with the profit athletes. We're we're looking at, at something that could be pitched as different in kind rather than degree, and that's one of the issues that came up. At this oral argument again and again and again because intuitively i think a lot of decision makers looking at this without having a really deep understanding of the the different stratas of athletes and the categories of interests you know across the ncaa and through the divisions they have this sense that wait a minute these big time football and basketball programs are kind of in a different space and are we comparing apples to apples when we're talking about athletes you, when you get down below the FBS level and then into products in Division One, all these are Division One schools, but products in Division I that don't even offer athletic scholarships like the Ivy League. And we have a an athlete from Cornell who presumably <laughs> didn't get an athletic scholarship. So th- there's some tension there across the products under the broader NCAA umbrella. And then another important feature of this lawsuit is that the plaintiffs, the athletes, are saying that these universities are joint employers with the NCAA to try to bring the NCAA in as an employer and put them on the hook for these FLSA benefits. The same thing is happening under the NLRA through these charges and the one that's going forward right now in California with USC, Southern Cal's Profit Athletes Football men's basketball and women's basketball. So you have a threat to the NCAA here that is substantial, and the central question under this joint employer theory is the extent to which the NCAA actually controls the work conditions and the relationship between the athletes and the institutions. Uh, So let me just give you a real quick setup procedurally. Why is this case in the Third Circuit? So the complaint was filed in uh, 2019, and then the NCAA, as it always does, files a motion to dismiss the entire lawsuit on the grounds that this Burger case, which came out of the Seventh Circuit uh, from 2016, basically gives the NCAA absolute immunity under the FLSA. And they don't have to even go through uh, discovery and fact-finding. We just put our amateurism trump card on the table, and we win because of this dicta from Board of Regents that I've talked so much about in this podcast that had absolutely nothing to do with the ruling in in that case in Board of Regents. But it went on and on about the revered tradition of amateurism and that athletes can't be paid. And since 1984, the Board of Regents decision was decided in 1984, the NCAA had gotten almost absolute deference and fealty from the judiciary because of that offhand language. And the NCAA has basically been able to march into court in a variety of contexts, not, not just athlete pay context, but almost any challenge to NCAA eligibility rules would be met with the amateurism trump card from this magic dicta in Board of Regents. And courts uniformly across the country, federal and state courts both, would bend the knee to the uh, principle, the sacred principle of amateurism, and they would create out of whole cloth essentially judicial immunities. And that's exactly what happened in Berger. And remember, Berger is 2016, so we don't have Austin on the books. And we still have this powerful sense of deference to the NCAA's authority as the sole regulator of college sports and this monolithic, untouchable authority figure, that the hegemon, that I've talked quite a bit about in the context of Richard Southall and Ellen Starowski's 2013 article cheering on the collegiate model and Miles Brand's collegiate model. This really powerful deference to the NCAA and its propagandized version of amateurism. And that pattern has held true really up until the Austin decision. And I I guess you could say O'Bannon because O'Bannon was the first case that actually said that the NCAA was accountable under our nation's free competition laws. But the remedy in that case was as favorable for the NCAA as it was for the athletes. And then we have Austin with the unanimity in the Supreme Court that basically said, no, you're not above the law. So one of the interesting things about the evolution of this Johnson case and the two cases that preceded it is that you really start to get a sense of the impact of of the Austin way of thinking about the NCAA's authority and its power. Uh, and, and that came out in this oral argument. And I'm going to talk about that because that's one of the most important features of the way that the Third Circuit handled this case at oral argument. But the NCAA came in with this motion to dismiss, and they basically said, we're untouchable. C. Burger versus NCAA. And, and I want to point out an important feature of a motion to dismiss in federal court. And this is what's called a 12B6 motion, which refers to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which talks about how you file a motion to dismiss, what the standard is, and when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate. And the uh, sole question under a motion to dismiss, under 12b-6, is whether the complaint, the athlete's claims, state a plausible cause of action and all inferences about the way the complaint is structured, whether it satisfies the necessary elements, all those inferences are drawn in favor of the pleading party, the party who is defending the motion to dismiss. So there's some built-in deference to trying to keep the lawsuit alive. And that's important here because all that was being decided on this motion to dismiss is whether or not the case could go forward and not just be kicked out of court. The district court judge, a senior judge, Judge Padova, he issued a ruling on that sole issue and said, no, you're not entitled to a judicial immunity shield because of this offhand language from Board of Regents, you're going to be treated as any other litigant would be here, and you're going to have to prove through discovery, through evidence, through deposition testimony, and ultimately, perhaps a trial, that These athletes are not employees under the FLSA. You don't get a free pass here. And it's also important to note that the NCAA's motion to dismiss also included this joint employer claim that the NCAA was a joint employer with these universities and could be held liable under the FLSA. So Judge Padova issued a separate order on that and said yes the NCAA could be a joint employer. And again, on that issue, as with the employee issue, Judge Padova wasn't saying that the NCAA was a joint employer as a matter of law. All he was saying is that the complaint, the athlete's complaint, plausibly alleged that the NCAA was a joint employer because of the extent of control it exercised over the lives of the athletes and, and the institutions. So after Judge Padova rules on the motion to dismiss, the NCAA comes in and files what's called an interlocutory appeal, typically in a federal lawsuit. And this is true in state courts as well. You can't appeal to uh, a higher court until every issue in the case has been resolved. An exception to that is the interlocutory appeal where a party says, wait a minute, We have this single issue that could decide all of the issues in this case, and we need a ruling on this now before we move forward with litigation. Interlocutory appeals are rare. They are a clear exception to the final judgment rule, and in some circuits aren't received very well by the judges. And the sole issue that was presented in the NCAA's request for this unusual appeal was whether or not athletes as a matter of law could be employees under the FLSA. And it's also important to note that these types of appeals are not granted as a matter of right. These are discretionary appeals and the judges can say no. And the reason that that feature of this type of uh, process is so important is that I think a lot of people, myself included, when I looked at this and, and saw that the Third Circuit had accepted this, that the District Court had recommended that the the interlocutory appeal be granted, I think a lot of people believed, as I did, that that wasn't good for the athletes because by granting the interlocutory appeal, there was a suggestion that this immunity shield that the NCAA had in Burger that was created out of whole cloth, that that immunity shield issue was a legitimate issue. And I thought, wow, you know, these cases are so fact intensive and you really can't even begin to answer that question unless there's been fact finding, unless there's been discovery. And it just didn't make sense intuitively on this type of case that a court would say, well, we're going to look at an issue that might be dispositive when we don't have the facts to even form an intelligent opinion on whether athletes can be employees for purposes of the FLSA. And so that led me to to wonder whether the, the Third Circuit was going to buy this judicial immunity, this absurd immunity that was just plucked out of thin air, by the district court in this Burger case, and was premised on a really offensive theory and a supporting case that compared athlete student athlete labor. And I'm using student athlete the way they the NCAA would here student athlete labor to prison labor and the exception to involuntary servitude contained in the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. It was just a really disturbing opinion from the district court in this Burger case. And then the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals basically accepted that logic and said, Yeah, we're gonna side with the NCAA here. But again, that was prior to Austin. This was 2016. And the NCAA was able to put that amateurism-based immunity shield on the bench, and they won. And they walked away with a easy, quick victory without having to go through discovery, without having to find a single fact, without having to look at the truth of the relationship between the athletes and the institutions. So the case is now sitting in the Third Circuit, and both parties are submitting briefs, their position papers, on why they should win. And then we had oral argument originally scheduled for December of 2022, then it was moved to January, then, and then to February. So it's taken a while to get to this oral argument, And an an important thing happens just two weeks before this oral argument that I think led a lot of people, including myself and I believe also the NCAA's attorneys, to believe that the, the court was going to be hostile to the athletes' claims. That They were maybe looking for a way out of recognizing athletes as employees. And that was a, let me pull this out, a January 30th letter from the Third Circuit to all of the attorneys. And it says this. The party should be prepared to discuss at oral argument how plaintiffs, the athletes, FLSA arguments might impact colleges and universities' obligations under Title Seven and Title IX. And those issues were not argued in the district court or in the briefing on the interlocutory appeal in the Third Circuit. There had been no meaningful discussion about that. And when I saw this, and this wasn't reported in in the media, when I saw this, I'm thinking, hmm, the Third Circuit's looking for an escape hatch here. And that letter is very cryptic. I just read you the, the entirety of it. So there was no context. And interestingly, the Third Circuit didn't ask for additional briefing on those issues. It just said, be prepared at oral argument to address them. I saw that as a positive sign for the NCAA and the universities and not for the athletes. I didn't think that was this was good at all for the athletes. So I was uh, anticipating that the bench at oral argument yesterday was going to be looking to find ways to wiggle out of this direct question of whether or not the NCAA should, should get absolute immunity for reasons other than this offensive reasoning from the burger case which compared athletes to prison labor. So you had some interesting dynamics coming into this oral argument and I wanted to provide all that context because what happened at oral argument was really interesting. And I guess before I get into the oral argument I guess I should say this as well. I am an attorney, I've mentioned that in the podcast and I did appellate work. I have taught courses on appellate advocacy. And I have advised clinical programs on appellate advocacy at a couple of law schools. So I have a good sense of how you think about an appellate argument and the things that influence your thinking when you are formulating your argument. And you have got to be flexible. You have got to be ready to go where the bench wants to go. And sometimes you can just get thrown a curveball from the very beginning and it can be difficult to recover from. And in this case, because the NCAA filed this interlocutory appeal, they went first, and their attorney, a guy named Steve Katz with a big time law firm, I think he came in thinking what I would have thought, <laughs> you know, uh, that is that the court's looking for an escape hatch here. They sent this letter on Title Seven, Title Nine. Let's start with that and see if we can create enough uncertainty in the bench's mind that they may be more inclined to go with this on this absolute immunity and just preserve the status quo that athletes can't be employees in in a way that kind of takes us out of this burger framework. And then two other observations about oral argument generally in, in an appellate case. And one is that oral argument is rarely an accurate barometer for how the court actually sees the case or how they ultimately decide it. So I want to put that caveat up there. Two, if you are arguing on a 12b6 motion to dismiss, if you are opposing the, the dismissal of the case like the athletes are, you really want to focus on the standard and the inference that goes against granting that motion and that looking at the allegations in the complaint, in the light most favorable to the person defending that motion. And a part of that is to get the court to focus solely on issues within the four corners of the complaint and the issues presented in the lawsuit. You want to keep it as narrow as possible so that you can avoid a discussion about the parade of horribles that might result outside of the four corners of the lawsuit if the court gives the relief that you're asking for. And the flip side of that for the NCAA here, you want to start and end and talk about everything in between in terms of the parade of horribles. And the NCAA has been doing that really for 70 years since the beginning of the athletic scholarship in 1956. Any change to that fundamentally corrupt relationship and those un-American compensation limits was met with the parade of horribles. This will be the end of college sports as we know it. This will be the end of non-revenue sports and women's sports. And we have to look at the cascading effect of a ruling that recognizes these athletes as employees. And that, I think, was how Katz was approaching the case from a philosophical standpoint, from a framing standpoint. And he thought he might have gotten a little uh, energy in that tactic with this letter, this January 30th letter. So he opens with those issues, trying to create a sky is falling narrative under Title IX or Title Seven if these athletes are recognized as employees. So he did, I think, what most advocates would have done and probably what I would have done under these unique circumstances when you get behind the podium and you're, and you're framing the case. But that's not how it went down. Because before Katz was two sentences into his discussion on the Parade of Horribles under Title Seven and Title IX, the, the bench came in with that curveball and it was headed right towards Katz's face. And so, you know, Katz had been talking about the unforeseen consequences, the unintended consequences about recognizing athletes as employees. And he talked about the, the potential tension between Title Seven and Title Nine as a terrible double bind, really trying to get the court to buy into the the parade of horribles narrative. And the court just didn't take that bait. And they came back really challenging some of the basic premises of the uh, NCAA's business model and the amateurism-based model. And I guess I should also identify who the judges were. So and I've said this in prior episodes in the context of the antitrust cases, that you have uh, th- panels of three judges that hear these appeals in circuit courts in the first instance. And The three judges in this case were David Porter, who was a Trump appointee, Luis Philippe Restrepo, who was an Obama appointee, and Theodore McKee, who was a Clinton appointee. But I didn't detect an obvious political partisan approach to this. I think there were a broad range of concerns that, that were raised about the NCAA's position here, but there are also some issues that are were more, much more subtle that lead me to believe that the, the resolution of this appeal, this interlocutory appeal, and the opinion that the judges may write is going to be in many ways as favorable to the NCAA and the Power Five's strategy in Congress as it is uh, helpful to athletes if the court does what I think they're likely to do. And that is just say, okay, you're not entitled to this absolute immunity. You don't get a free pass. You don't get an immunity shield. You got to go litigate this case. But I think if that opinion, if that decision is coupled with a recognition of some of the, the potential collateral damage that could be done if athletes or employees under the FLSA, that will strengthen the NCAA and Power Fives case in Congress. I'm going to talk more specifically about how some of those issues were raised during oral argument and why I think they could be a problem for not just the plaintiffs uh, in this case, the athletes in this case, but more importantly, the broader movement to try to have these athletes given the same rights as other Americans are and that other Americans take for granted. This is about allowing these athletes to Receive the same benefit under the law as any other person or entity in the United States of America. And I think that on this employee issue, which is where the NCAA has drawn a bright line in the sands, that's the hill that they will defend and that's the hill they will die on. And they haven't retreated from that one iota. And the NCAA State of the Association speech on January 12th with Linda Livingstone, Mark Emmert, and Charlie Baker, they just double, tripled, and quadrupled down on that single point. Athletes cannot be employees. And the NCAA and the movers and shakers at the governance level and these Power Five football interests, they are basically transforming the NCAA national office into a Lobbying company. They are acting as a satellite office of Brownstein Hyatt, the high-powered lobbyists working for the NCAA. I mean, it's breathtaking what they're doing there. But this no-employee issue is so so important to them. And so, I I want to talk now a little bit about how the issues evolved and some of the specific concerns that were raised by the judges and the implications of those concerns. There are a couple of important points to make in looking at the questions that the judges asked and then the advocates' responses to those questions. And First is that you look at the language of the statute here. That's a, a fundamental precept of analyzing any claim for statutory benefits? Do you fit within the protections of this statute? And the uh, FLSA does not specifically exempt student athletes or students generally. So in the absence of statutory language that clearly addresses the issue, courts apply tests, fact-based tests, an emphasis on fact-based to determine whether or not someone falls under the coverage of the FLSA. And the broadest test is called the economic realities test, is the economic reality of the relationship between the person seeking benefits under the FLSA consistent with the purposes of the FLSA in terms of their uh, employment status. And then beneath that broad test, the economic realities test, courts in in different circuits have developed a variety of subtests, very specific fact-based tests to determine whether or not a a person meets the definition of employee under the FLSA. And some of this discussion is the battle of the tests, what tests should apply. Of course, as I noted earlier, the NCAA and the universities are saying no test should apply. We don't even need to engage in any fact-finding because the economic reality for the student-athletes because of this amateurism trump card is that they can't, as a matter of law, be employees because student-athlete is the opposite of employee the way that the NCAA has propagandized that relationship. And of course, the athletes are saying, no, you're not above the law. You don't get this amateurism-based immunity card. And if the Unanimous Supreme Court decision in Austin stands for anything. It stands for the proposition that you are not above the law. And then we need to look at the true relationship under the variety of tests that have been used to determine the economic reality of the relationship between athletes and institutions. So the NCAA and the schools through Mr. Katz start with the Title IX, Title Boogie boogeymen and. As he's trying to create the Parade of Horribles framework, the court immediately jumps in and says, wait a minute, you're not taking Title IX seriously and made reference to the the debacle in the 2021 women's basketball tournament where uh, Sedona Prince published some photos on Instagram showing the disparities in facilities and that created the firestorm and led to the Kaplan report. So right out of the blocks, the judges were challenging the NCAA's assumption that it was fully committed to Title IX. And, you know, that's not where you want to start if you're arguing for the NCAA. Uh, And then the bench turned to the question of pay and whether the economic reality of the relationship between these athletes and institutions was one of employer and employee, And one of the central arguments that the NCAA has made in this case and other cases, is that student athletes are just that. They are primarily students, they are secondarily athletes, and they therefore can't be employees and that the educational value of being a quote unquote student athlete is adequate compensation for the time that they put in. And and the court pushed back immediately at that. And all three judges, I think, in varying degrees, understood at an intuitive level that athletes are different and that their contributions to the institutional interests are much different than someone who is in a drama club or works for the student newspaper or, or is in the band. And that's What the NCAA was essentially saying, look, student athletes are no different from these other student activities. And if we are going to say that uh, athletes are employees, are we going to have to say that all these other categories of extracurricular activity participants are are likewise employees? And and I just don't think that this panel was buying that argument for, for two reasons. One is that the athletes have real meaningful value that's different from other student activities to the institutional interest, and two, is the extent of control that the NCAA and the institutions exert over the lives of these athletes and the the structure that is imposed on them and the limitations on their basic freedoms that all other students enjoy. Uh, these athletes are required to keep timesheets in order to prove compliance with the hour limitations that the NCAA says that they impose on schools that nobody pays attention to. These countable athletically related activities, supposed to be 20 hours a week. Athletes are routinely working much more than that. Even at lower level division one, they're putting in you know, 30, 40 hours a week. And then when you get to the power five and the big time sports, it's 50, 60 hours a week. This is a full time commitment that has institutional value and the NCAA and the institutions impose that on The athletes. And in that sense, they are far from regular students. And an important point that the athletes made throughout this litigation and that the District Court Judge Padova acknowledged and relied on in his order, denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss, is that all of these burdens that are placed on the athletes as a result of NCAA rules and institutional requirements interferes with and undermines their educational experience. Because they can't participate in the educational experience on the same terms with other students. And they're limited in the majors that they can take, in the courses that they can take, in their basic academic liberties. And that was such an important point to make because the NCAA propagandizes the concept of the student-athlete when, in fact, the lives of student-athletes are directly in conflict with the values of higher education and the opportunities that should exist in the educational environment. And honestly, Mr. Katz didn't have a very good response to those observations and those challenges. And it really goes back to this circular reasoning that the NCAA has used and was exposed in O'Bannon and Austin and was exposed by Judge Padova, and at least implicitly adopted by the the Third Circuit in the questions that they asked. And that is that you have this rationale that athletes can't be paid because they are amateurs, and they're amateurs because they can't be paid. I mean, it's just a mind-bending circular argument, and one that Justice Kavanaugh really drilled down on in his concurring opinion in Austin, and that's ultimately where the NCAA had to land. And when the judges here were asking questions that really related to that circular argument, although they didn't ex- explicitly you know, phrase it that way, the NCAA really didn't have an effective response to that because it is an absurd circular argument. And Mr. Katz kept coming back to Berger because that's the case that gives the NCAA this immunity shield. And it was like this dance that they were doing and the court would ask questions that challenged the amateurism model essentially. And Mr. Katz just kept coming back to where he had to land and it's just not a defensible position. And so that leads me to one of the the first broad observations I want to make about this case. And I'm going to go through those here and point out the concerns that the court had, some issues that, that came up. One of the things that I talked about back in June when I did those two episodes on the Johnson case, was what does Austin mean now to the judiciary? How are courts, federal courts, going to look at athletes' rights cases just like this and apply Austin? What does Austin mean? And I have argued that Austin should have been the death of this extraordinary judicial deference that the NCAA had had for decades. And that was really the launchpad for Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, where he said, with surprising success, the NCAA has basically gotten a free pass for the last 40 years. And he was referring to the magic dicta from Board of Regents. Yet, the NCAA recycled that very dicta in the Johnson case and in this appeal to the Third Circuit. So what we learned from the Third Circuit argument yesterday is that at least in the Third Circuit with this panel, they did not give the NCAA any deference on its amateurism-based principles. And that's a really important piece of what happened yesterday in the oral argument. Of course, the flip side of that is that when you look honestly at the progress that athletes have made in these various external regulatory pathways, but here I'm talking about federal courts, their quote-unquote victories have really done nothing more than bring the NCAA under the umbrella of existing American laws. So in Austin, when a unanimous Supreme Court said, you're not above the law, you have to comply with our nation's free competition laws, that seemed like this amazing victory. But the starting point was a de facto, a practical form of antitrust immunity because of some offhand language from a case 40 years ago. And it just speaks to the power of the NCAA and the history of judicial fealty to amateurism. So in this case, in Johnson, all the athletes want right now, is for the NCAA to be held to the same standard under the FLSA as any other litigant would be, any other entity would be, any other potential employer would be. Uh, And I think it's important to keep that in mind when we are thinking about how this Johnson case may fit into the mosaic of athletes' rights cases. And to gild that point, there were a number of questions on, well, if This is a fact-specific inquiry into whether or not these athletes are employees under the FLSA. Why are we hearing this appeal on an issue that's been presented to us as a question of law? And that was a question I was asking back in June when I was talking about the Johnson case. And when the judges were looking at, at this case, we shouldn't even be talking about this until we have a fully developed factual record. But what does that speak to? It speaks to the power of the NCAA's uh, historical deference, the deference that it's gotten in, in these court cases. And the NCAA was able to get this issue rolled up as a legal issue that could be resolved as a matter of law from the district court to the Third Circuit. And as I was listening to that observation that came up several times, I'm thinking, well, you granted this interlocutory appeal. You Have agreed to hear this, you could have just said, There's no there, there. You're rolling up a question of fact as a question of law. Go back and do your fact finding, and then we'll talk about it when the case is over. That's the way it works (laughs) in federal litigation. So I thought that was an interesting line of questioning. And then another important theme that developed was a line of questioning that went to whether all athletes across the mosaic of NCAA athletes and the the divisions and the subdivisions and and all those distinctions, can we treat them the same? Or are the interests of, for example, Power Five football, men's basketball players different in kind from the interests of the the plaintiff athletes in this Johnson case, which are lower-level Division I, and some of them didn't get a scholarship. And I also want to point out, and I think one judge mentioned this briefly, is that in the Berger decision in the Seventh Circuit, the appeal from the district court opinion, one of the three judges, Judge Hamilton... Wrote a concurring opinion that went to this very point, and he was basically saying that we had the wrong plaintiffs, the wrong athletes in this discussion, because the the class of Burger athletes is very similar to the class of athletes that we have in, in Johnson lower-level Division One non-revenue athletes. And he said that's a more difficult case, and he he went along with the majority in uh, buying into this created out of whole cloth judicial immunity from the uh, Board of Regents Dicta. But he said, the easy case are the Power Five athletes. And there's no question that looking at their work, what they contribute, that they are employees. But the farther you move away from that obvious professionalized model in the Power Five market, and particularly the the football and men's basketball market, the more difficult it is to make the case for employee status. And again, I think that's an intuitive response to looking across the landscape of college athletes and down Division I into Division II and into Division Three. And there was some discussion or argument about that comparison to Division II and Division Three, And it's tricky. And I think that the judges are going to have to wrestle with that at some level in looking at the decisions that's on their lap, and then Judge Padova may have to look at that as well if the case goes back to him. Uh, and that discussion then dovetails into another issue that came up at oral argument, and that is whether the athletic scholarship itself is a form of compensation, even though it's expressed in terms of in-kind exchanges for, for the most part. There's some case law that says that in-kind exchanges are relevant in in assessing compensation under the FLSA. And those issues were really directed to the athlete's advocate, Michael Williman, who I thought did a really good job. He, He was very good at keeping the court focused on the standard under a 12b6 motion to dismiss and that we're just looking at the allegations in the complaint. And he was also very good and very disciplined at trying to keep the discussion within the four corners of the issues raised in the lawsuit through the pleadings and trying to stay away from the parade of horribles and really saying, look, we just have to decide this case. That's the job here. And then any other collateral issues that may arise from this lawsuit can be addressed in the context of the real relationship between the athletes and the institutions, and that is an employer-employee relationship under the FLSA. And then another issue that arose from the question of whether the athletic scholarship is in itself a form of compensation and payment. And both sides seem to say that it wasn't. NCAA, of course, can't can't admit that because that's not good for their no-employee campaign. The athletes have, uh, as I understand it, taken the position that the athletic scholarship is not compensation, or if it is, it's different from the kind of compensation that you would get as an employee under the FLSA, and that it would be in addition to the athletics awards, not in lieu of those awards, because a couple of judges made an interesting observation and, and one that I have talked a little bit about, and that is that If the athletic scholarship is compensation under the FLSA, then would the schools be entitled to essentially use that as an offset against an hourly wage if they're deemed employees? And if you use that analysis, The FLSA issues are are going to be irrelevant for athletes who have scholarships because the value of the scholarship would exceed what they might be paid on an hourly rate at a minimum wage. And that issue didn't really get fully fleshed out, but it's an issue and it's on the table and it's going to be something that the judges may have to address when they get around to writing an opinion. And again, that issue came up in questions to Mr. Williman, And then when Mr. Katz came came back around for rebuttal, Mr. Katz leaned into the offset issue. And if the court views the scholarship as compensation, then there would be very little, if any, value to having these athletes get benefits, hourly wage benefits under the FLSA. And then there was also some discussion about a Department of Labor Interpretations memo that seemed to suggest that intercollegiate athletes are on the same par with other kind of student affinity organizations and people who participate in them, like like band, like drama, that kind of thing. I think the athletes have a good argument in, in response to that. And that's something that the NCAA has leaned into heavily in its argument. And then remember that the Southeastern Conference, SEC, filed a friend of the court brief that was devoted almost exclusively to this Department of Labor interpretation that seems on its face favorable to the NCAA's interests, but it's not a rule of law. And the question is what legal weight should be given that ruling. But what came out of, of the oral argument is that that issue is really not ripe right now. Procedurally, that issue is not before the court because it was raised as an affirmative defense by the NCAA and the institutions. And it really wasn't relevant to a review of the pleadings, whether the pleadings, the complaint, the athlete's pleadings, stated a plausible cause of action under the FLSA. So that's another issue though. It's going to be resolved if this case goes back to the district court. And I think that's where this is headed. So the reason I'm going through these issues that came up is that they all create problems for the athletes. And because in this very narrow context of what the Third Circuit is called upon to decide on this motion to dismiss and and this judicial immunity, there are so many other issues that could be complicating issues for the athletes if and when the case gets sent back to the district court for discovery and and fact-finding. And then we go through the normal litigation process, and then on the backside of that, the NCAA can appeal if it loses and and can raise all, all of these issues and have a more thorough discussion about them. But to me, one of the most consequential issues that came up during this oral argument was whether this issue of athletes as employees under the FLSA shouldn't be better addressed by Congress rather than federal courts. And that was where Mr. Katz started. And he said, this is a policy question. This is not a legal question. And we need to let Congress decide this. And remember, in the Austin case, Justice Gorsuch, who issued the majority of opinion, when he called out the NCAA and what it was actually seeking in that, in that case, which was total antitrust immunity for its compensation limits. He said, look, we're not giving it to you. You're not getting judicially created antitrust immunity. You can still go across the street or down the street and, and get it from Congress, but we're not giving it to you. And I think a lot of people who were in the NCAA camp saw that as an invitation to engage Congress on that issue. I don't think that's what Justice Gorsuch meant. I think he was just saying, you're making a massive ask here. We're not going to give it to you because you really aren't entitled to it. But Congress has the authority to give it to you. So Katz really jumped on that theme early. And then one of the judges, I can't remember which one, I, I couldn't tell sometimes who was actually speaking. I didn't have a video feed. I was listening to it. It was an audio feed, and I haven't gone back to see if there's a, a transcript and where we could f- figure all that stuff out. But one of, the, one of the judges said this. He said, isn't this really a policy question for the legislature, and couldn't we just punt on this and say that Congress should decide? That, to me, was a very, very important observation, and when I talk about what I think the Third Circuit's going to decide and what the opinion might look like, I think that's going to be a component of it. And then, of course, even the athletes, when they were making the case on the statutory construction of the FLSA, they said, look, the, the law doesn't specifically exempt athletes from... The coverage of the FLSA. And Congress could have done that. So if, if Congress wants to come in and say that athletes can't be employees under the FLSA, they can do that and amend the FLSA, but that hasn't happened. And so here we are, and this is the state of the law right now. I think all three of those arguments that, that lean into congressional engagement and having Congress decide this issue could be a real problem for the athletes. And the reason for that is that we wanna believe that in Congress, through a policy discussion, through hearings, through a thorough and sifting vetting of the issues relating to athletes, as employees, that we will be able to come up with a decision and an outcome on this that takes into account a broad array of interests. And in federal litigation, the litigants wanna win, their goal is to win, they aren't l- really focused on broader policy issues and and there's been a lot of discussion about the limitations of addressing some of these big policy type issues in federal litigation because you can't take into account all, all of the policy issues it's it's just the four corners of of the lawsuit and what the law says what it what it doesn't say and th- the problem with that thinking as attractive as it may be to say look let's just have this discussion in congress is that The NCAA and the Power Five have owned the congressional debate from the very beginning, and they have defined the issues in very narrow parameters that I argue are even narrower than what you get in some of these federal lawsuits, particularly the antitrust suits. So you had the NCAA coming in with the most powerful lobbying firm on the planet, Brownstein, Hyatt, in 2019. They framed the debate. All these hearings were kabuki theater, and all you heard was no, 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 no to athletes as employees. And that became a a dominant theme that the Democrats uh, allowed to go forward even when they controlled the Senate. And I've talked quite a bit about that. But this notion that in this particular debate on athletes' rights, that sending this to Congress is going to result in a more intelligent, broad-based policy discussion and then a a decision that reflects a broad-based policy discussion, is an illusion. It is an illusion. And the NCAA and the Power Five and all of their lobbyists are working double time right now behind the scenes to make sure that if and when this issue is presented properly to Congress, and we have a piece of legislation that's actually being discussed, that they control the debate, they control the narrative, and they're going to get a piece of federal legislation that says, no, hell no, athletes can't be employees. And there are four federal bills that have been proposed since 2020 that would make it impossible for athletes to be employees. And it's rolled up under the guise of name, image, and likeness. And that employee issue is irrelevant to name, image, and likeness because the universities aren't supposed to be involved in the nil market. So how can this employee issue even be relevant in, in, in the context of nil? It's not. And the NCAA doesn't care. They just wanted to get the issue in front of Congress because they will do everything in their power to prevent these athletes from being deemed employees. So now I'm going to do something that I tell other lawyers and and, and law students not to do. I am going to try to read some tea leaves in what happened in this oral argument yesterday and give my take on what I think a ruling is going to look like. And I think that it was pretty clear that they're not going to buy the NCAA's immunity shield arguments from this Disgusting burger case and, and the prison labor analogy. It didn't appear to me that they were going to look at the impact, potential impact on on Title Seven and, and Title Nine, as a way to just preempt the the athlete as employee issue and preserve the status quo. It sounded to me like they were saying, look we don't even know why we're hearing this case. This is a fact-based determination. You don't get immunity. This case is going to go back to the district court, and then you can make all the arguments you want to make. We're going to have discovery. And then on the backside of that, if there are issues you want to raise on appeal, you're free to do that. I think that's where they are heading on the law. But I think you are also likely to see in that opinion, a catalog of all of these collateral issues that could pose a problem. And then you're also likely to see, I think, some kind of a statement from the panel that maybe this is an issue that's best addressed by Congress because it is a big issue, it's a consequential issue, and it could alter the relationship between students and institutions and have an impact on higher education more broadly. I think you're likely to see language like that. And if that happens, and the case goes back, and I'm going to talk a little bit and close this out with the timing as I see it. If I'm right about this case just going back for regular litigation, but if the Third Circuit panel crafts an opinion like that, I believe that just adds fuel to the NCAA's congressional campaign, and I'm just concerned that that type of uh, an opinion that sort of tries to play both sides, but the escape hatch, the ultimate escape hatch, is go to Congress that. That could have some persuasive impact on the receptiveness that this Congress has on looking at this employee-no-employee issue. And remember that the NCAA was desperately hoping for a Republican-controlled Senate because this has become a partisan debate. And if the Republicans had won the Senate in in the midterms, we're not having this discussion. There's probably already a bill in place that's ready ready to be voted on that says, no, hell no, these athletes can't be employees. And they're playing the long game. When you hire Brownstein-Hyatt or the SEC hires Aiken-Gump or all these high-powered lobbying firms, they're not just going to throw up their arms and walk away and say, oh, gosh, we didn't get the Congress we wanted, so we're going to pull out of the lobbying campaign and we're going to pull out of Congress. No, they're in it for the long uh, run and the long game, and they have laid a substantial foundation since 2019, to to being in a position where they can call in all of their chits in the inside the beltway influence peddling game. That's why they have the, the most influential lobbyists working for them. That's what you get when you hire those lobbyists. And remember, too, that if Congress were to pass a law that said that athletes can't be employees, that would cover the NLRA as well. So all these these uh, pathways to employee status would simply disappear, as would the all of the antitrust litigation and the antitrust precedent if the NCAA gets antitrust immunity. They're asking for that as well. And of course, they also want the preemption of state laws. This is a total takedown of the athletes' rights movement, what the NCAA is seeking. And they're in it for the long game. And when you look at the the timeline for all of these different pathways, you have the House case, the antitrust case in California the name image and likeness case that's going to go into 2024. you have these nlRA pathways that could go well into 2024 after the next election cycle and if you look at this Johnson case and you you project out let's say that that I'm right and the the court the the third circuit sends this back to the district court you have a full litigation or guess I should also say, the, the NCAA could appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that the Supreme Court's going to take that case. I think they've had their say on college sports right now, and they don't want to get involved any further. And they kind of had a free shot with Austin because that didn't raise the, the fundamental question of an open and free market for the athlete services because the litigants and uh, the plaintiffs, the athletes in Austin, didn't pursue that in, their, in the NCAA's appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the NCAA filed that appeal, not the athletes'. So that Austin case was important symbolically because of the unanimity. And they said that the NCAA wasn't above the law, but it really doesn't move things forward that much substantively on athletes getting their fair market value. So I don't think the Supreme Court's going to take the case. So maybe the NCAA will still appeal just to extend the clock, just to make this process drag out and try to get all these issues post 2024 election. And then if they get a Republican Senate and the Senate map looks very favorable for the Republicans, then it's a whole new ball game. It's a whole new day. So you know, if you're looking at the timeline, you're gonna have a few months before the Third Circuit issues its opinion. And in the Third Circuit, it's normally about five months from oral argument to um, a decision in an interlocutory appeal like this, then the NCAA appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. That could take months and months and months. And if the Supreme Court doesn't decide to hear the case and it comes then back to the district court, you go through all the litigation. And when the litigation is over at the district court level, then you're going to have another appeal to the Third Circuit on all of the issues that have been resolved at the trial court level. And then perhaps another appeal after that, if the NCAA doesn't like the result, to the U.S. Supreme Court. This could go on for years. All all these pathways could go on for years. And and it's for that reason that I think it's so important that we keep an eye on what the NCAA and Power Five really want here, and that is a congressional bailout. And and they sure as heck are not just going to throw up their hands and say, okay, you win, athletes. You win. What do you want? And, And that's why I believe that we're in a really critical time for athletes' rights, and the athletes need to own these issues. The athletes need to mobilize, to come together, to understand what's happening, and to make their voices be heard, to really grab a big megaphone and say, Wait a minute, what about us? Do we get a say in this? Do we get to talk about what we want? All the stuff's running through these external regulatory pathways and federal litigation and administrative agencies and all that. And I fear that the athletes are waiting for Superman. They're waiting for the superhero to come in and save the day for them. I don't see that happening, at least not anytime soon. So this is a golden opportunity for the athletes to really own their power and come in with a unified voice to speak their truth, whatever it may be, whatever it may be. It is time for that. The time is now. So I want to go ahead and close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.